You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob DeHoopy. Hey, Rob, one year. One year of the podcast. Yeah, um, I can't believe we've hit a year. That's amazing. It feels like it's flown by uh, between auditing and everything else we do, consulting, working with our clients, conferences, um, and uh, doing a podcast, webinars. You've been heavy on our webinar side, too, putting a lot of good content out on the webinars. And uh, But yeah, we hit a year. This is exciting. Yeah, a lot of lot of changes too in the national landscape of 340B2 over the last year. Lots of changes to manufacturer restrictions, some, you know, judicial decisions impacting the manufacturer restrictions and contract pharmacies. We've got proposed legislation. I mean, it's been a busy year and lots of stuff for us to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely, and excited for our, our uh, actual episode today. If everyone remembers, we we asked. Um, the podcast community to send in some questions and we got some great questions, some tough ones, uh, really impressed by some of the questions. So Greg and I have our work cut out for us. Uh, we have uh, Aiden that's going to be helping us with the questions as well. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, but before we get started, Greg, I just want to say I, you know, um, I was busy. Um, I was on a PTO last week and um, and you, you, you ended up interviewing a handful of um, uh, 340B subject matter experts who attended the coalition conference, many who I think they all uh, presented at the conference or took a lot of content from the conference. We had some staff and some of our clients that you brought on. And I got to say that I thought that was an amazing episode. Uh, your ability to um, really almost be, I almost felt like fireside chats where you're just having this great conversation. I could almost picture you guys by a fireplace in two chairs, just having this great conversation. And and I thought the conversations you had um, with, uh, with, with everyone on the call, I think it was Jennifer, Shakita, uh, Pooja, um, Aaron, uh, non, er, everyone who was on the call, I just felt provided great content, um, yeah. and I really enjoyed it. So I just want to say thank you to to you, Greg, for doing that. I almost think we should do more of that. Like I love listening to it and, and yeah. not listening to me, to be perfectly honest, and uh, just listening to you guys just share content for the community. So just want to thank everyone for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like people that we work with have such great insight and so many anecdotes, and I know we've said this. In our team meetings, when you see one covered entity, you've seen one covered entity. So there's so many different perspectives out there around 340B operations. So you know, I, I definitely think there's there's value in bringing folks on. And everyone that was involved in that episode, you know, they said, "Oh, really nervous, uh, really apprehensive to do this," but they all did really well. And you know, welcome more people who are interested to come on and, and share share stories. Yeah, I, I didn't hear anything like that. I just I just heard great content and great great conversation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I loved it. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And it was a little longer. I didn't even notice it. I ended up getting to the end and realizing I, as a, you know, we try and stay around an hour in a little longer, but I, I don't see how we could have cut anything out. It was also good. All right. Okay. Um, we got a couple of updates. We'll take a little break and then we're going to do our Q&A. First, let's start with a timely update regarding hospital recertification. So it is that time of year again. HRSA is going to open the, re, uh, the recertification window. I think this episode will, um, will be available on the first day of registration. So the recertification timeline for 2023 begins August 14th and continues through September 11th. So covered entities, uh, hospital covered entities will need to review their OPA database listings, update information as needed, and the authorizing official will need to complete the attestation associated with uh, the annual recertification. Um, again, Busy time of year, particularly for those large health systems and 340B program managers that have a lot of hospital programs to uh, to get through recertification. Yeah, and Greg, I know you you attended the one of the webinars around recertification and um, provided a good update for our team. Uh, didn't seem like anything too major on there. Any new updates? I know we the government con government official is removed, uh, which we already knew about. Um, but anything else that you saw, or is it pretty much status quo from from last year? Yeah, I think. Pretty, pretty standard from from last year. You know, I think one of the a couple of the changes that they that OPA has made to the OPA database one is removal of the the government official from the qualification info tabs. You don't need to uh, confirm or or type in who your uh, government official is. 
Um, another change that was made to OPACE uh, in the spring was around uh, the ability to submit change requests for information that's listed in that qualification info tab. So that's things like your Medicare cost report information, your um, what else, hospital classification, type of control, all of those uh, things that are listed on the hospital qualification info tab are now editable through the change request function. And the 340B Health webinar that we listened to, and this is what we have said uh, since we saw those, those postings, that was confirmed through communi email communications with OPA. HRSA expects you to update that information in real time now. So historically, you would update your MCR data annually during recertification, even if you filed your cost report at some point throughout the year. The expectation is now with the change request function, as soon as your cost report's filed, you need to go in and you need to make updates to the filing dates of the cost report, the cost reporting period, this percentage, confirm that your hospital classification and type of control are all correct. Otherwise, uh, you'll be subject to a potential OPA database um, finding if you're subject to a HRSA audit. So uh, that's something that some folks have been emphasizing is that you don't need to wait now for recertification to update that info. Just do it as soon as your Medicare cost reports file. Excellent. Yeah, good updates. And of course, if you haven't, you still can do it. Um, it's still a timely time to do it right now. Um, definitely want to uh, do it uh, after your cost report files, but um, no time like the present if you haven't done it so done it yet since the last one filed. How about legislative updates, Rob? What's what's going on in Washington with regard to 340B proposed legislation? You know, it feels like normally this time of the year, we don't have a lot going on in previous years. And this year just feels like there is a ton of activity. Um, you know, we we talked, uh, I don't know if we mentioned last time, I think we talked about last time, there was the six senators asking, they had RFI and asking information, which was timely. And and what we found out is recently there there were some additional bills on the, or another bill on the Senate side that's coming through. And it's related to the PBM reform bill that we've, we've been talking about multiple episodes in the intro, um, the, the Mc, Kathy McMorris-Rogers bill that's uh, renamed Patient Act of 2023. Not to be confused, by the way, I, I did pick up on this. The Her bill is renamed Patient Act of 2023. And of course, we have, um, at least we're hearing that uh, Doris Matsui's bill that's supposed to um, kind of help with the contract pharmacy manufacturer issue. That one's called 340B Patients Act. So very similar name, just 340B is on the beginning of one and on the end of the other. So I don't want people to get confused we by that. We, have, have we seen a no. draft of that one? I haven't, I haven't been paying close attention to all the legislative developments. There's no draft yet that's been publicly circulated, correct? Yeah, endorse Matsui's uh, contract pharmacy bill? We, yeah. I haven't seen yeah. it yet. So, right, there's been talk about it. There was a, um, I want to say it's 340B report or 340B health. I can't remember which one reported the name of the bill, right? That's where we came up with it. We saw it was a pretty cool acronym that, that they came up with for that. Um, but we, we haven't seen that yet. And, and I haven't heard it actually going to the Energy and Commerce Committee or the Subcommittee on Health for voting, right? So that's going to be the first stop that uh, Representative Matsui has to take it to. Uh, probably, uh, I know that she has some bipartisan support, but probably needs to make sure she has support. And and the other issue is, um, you know, you need one of the chairs to, um, to, 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 uh, uh, to put the bill on the agenda, right? That's almost sometimes where having a leader that controls the agenda is key, because even if you have bipartisan support, you've got to get it on the agenda so you can talk about it and get some votes on it. And, and I don't have, the, that's just all, uh, um, me thinking about what's occurring, but yeah, we know we haven't seen a lot of movement, but we're, I'm I'm excited to see if that bill can move through and, and if it can get bipartisan support and get all the way through. But you know, it is an odd time of the year with um, you know that summer session kind of ending. So so we'll see what happens through the rest of the year on that bill. But I will say what's interesting though, the Senate's been active, right? They've been almost everything's been running through the House, and so it was that um, the PBM bill. Remember the PBM bill. Right. It's initially it's mostly focused on PBM spread pricing. Right. And that's when a PBM basically uh, pays um, a pharmacy one amount, uh, but then collects a different amount from the health plan. Right. So there's a spread. That's what they call spread pricing. And that spread is where a lot of PBMs make their money. And so it's really getting rid of that spread so that they can't charge the health plan one hundred dollars and pay the pharmacy 50 bucks and keep 50 dollars or worse. And so that's what the bill gets away gets away from. But remember, a component of that bill is the managed Medicaid um, component. And that's what it's saying. Managed Medicaid needs to charge AAC or actual acquisition costs plus a dispensing fee. And traditionally, most managed Medicaid plans or MCO Medicaid plans haven't done that. So what we're concerned about is even though this bill um, 
did did well so far um, on the energy and commerce uh, or on on the house side. You know, there wasn't a Senate companion bill yet, and now we have one. So that's the recent news. On July 26, the Senate Finance Committee um, voted on a similar bill, almost a very similar language around the MCO Medicaid component, um, and it passed 25 to one. So again. Um, this this bill is doing quite quite well with unanimous passing. Again, there's one I guess dissenter in the Senate Finance Committee, but my my concern is this bill can make it through. And Greg, we've talked about it multiple times. You know, MCO Medicaid plans being able to voluntarily pay more more than AAC, but if it does, then that that difference has to be reported by the covered entity. So that's a little extra work. Um, I will say that one difference between the two bills, which was nice, the House bill says that this has to be public information when whatever the covered entities get paid more than um, the AAC amount. In the Senate bill, it didn't appear that there was gonna be similar language, but probably wait to be seen what, what kind of language is in there from the bill. Not formally released yet, that Senate bill, but it does. there's a companion bill and at least it made it through the first hurdle and had some votes in that Senate Finance Committee. So definitely want to watch, because I think um, as we've talked about, is there going to be more or are there going to be more MCO Medicaid plans doing an AAC reimbursement model? And is that going to be yeah. a significant impact um, for the states? I mean, California, New York are already doing it, right? So they're already impacted. They don't actually have managed Medicaid in retail anymore. Um, but for all the other states, it's, it is an area, especially for FQHCs and some of our hospitals as well, where they are carving in managed Medicaid in their in-house retails. And if they lose that savings, that's another big impact along with manufacturer restrictions and um, and you know, just other things occurring that could be big. So, and, and did you have any updates or thoughts on those PBM reforms, or just just need to keep watching it? Yeah, just keep watching it. And I, I, the question that I've had that I, I haven't been able to get a good answer on is what would incentivize an MCO to forego the option to reimburse at AAC? Like, who, what what healthcare insurer out there is going to say, oh yeah, we're going to continue to pay as usual and customary? I don't know. I mean, maybe there are incentives based on you know, back-end rebates or, or some other parts of the equation that I'm not familiar with. But, you know, it's it's hard to come up with an idea or a, a thought as to why uh, an MCO might opt out of reimbursing at AAC. Have you heard anything about that? I can't. I, I haven't heard a good reason why someone would. Uh, you know, most of these health yeah. plans have, have budgets and they have financial metrics and they're trying to lower the cost of their um, what they charge their health plans for for administering the benefit. And um, I, so I can't see why they wouldn't look at this as an opportunity to lower their costs um, so they can help, you know, help their bottom line, but also help help their clients as well. So uh, that's my concern. I, it's going to continue to be a concern. If anyone out there has good information, maybe, you know, is an expert in this field, love to have you on to help us understand that and help the 340B community understand that better. Because right now it's just a Kind of a concern for ours, um, and I, I hope it's unfounded. Yeah. Uh, but we can't help but be concerned about it and pay attention to it. Okay, if I can, there's another bill um, that's probably worth talking about. So I won't talk about transparency bills. That one continues to um, be discussed. Uh, no, no really movement on the transparency bill, um, right? It, we know that um, that's the Bouchon bill passed on party lines for the most part in the um, in the Energy and Commerce Committee on May 24th. Haven't really heard much of it. I think part of the discussion around that is. That Senate six um, RFI. So we'll wait and see if anything happens there. But I do want to bring up another bill that's kind of concerning that we haven't talked about before. Um, and this one uh, just came out. Um, a draft was provided on July 28th. And again, uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers out of Washington. She's been busy. Um, this one's a drug shortage bill. I, I think it aims to try and help with drug shortages, but it does have three components in there specifically um, affecting 340B, which I think is, is a little scary. So so first, it, um, it basically exempts generic sterile injectable drugs that have at least one indication for a serious disease or condition and where there's more than one manufacturer, right? So there's competition. Um, I, I didn't quite understand that at first. I thought, wouldn't it be better to, to do it for innovator products that don't have competition so that we don't you know, end up shortage there? But for whatever reason, that there's, there must be some logic behind that. So that's generic injectables with generic competition. And if, as long as they have one serious disease or condition, they won't be subject to 340B. So I think that could be problematic. Um, for covered entities. Um, so I'm not sure where that will go. I don't know even know how many drugs that is, right? I think some discernment has to occur to find out how big of an impact is this going to be on hospitals um, and, and even FQHCs to a certain extent if any of their drugs are impacted. Um, the second is they're actually actually they're asking the GEO to go back uh, for 10 years of data for the past decade and determine for drugs that basically were less than a dollar. So likely subject to some inflation penalties or penny pricing penalties. Um, and what that um, 
sub-dollar price tag and how that intersected with drug shortages. So they want to know, they're trying to determine if this, this low price caused some drug shortages. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that's a little misguided, to be honest, because um, you know, I, just because something's a, less than a dollar doesn't mean people just go out and buy a ton of it. Um, you buy it based on, yeah. uh, on your accumulation in most cases. I guess if it's prospective, you can buy some, but you're not going to buy a ton. You, you, it could expire. So just because it's cheap doesn't mean you stockpile it. But, but we'll see. We'll see if the GAO's report comes back and shows there's been a negative um, correlation there. The final thing, which I think is actually positive. So those two first, well, I guess the middle one's neutral. It's just data fact fighting. The first one is the problematic issue, um, taking drugs off the 340B um, list. The third one, which I thought, thought was interesting, is um, the bill wants um, HRSA to issue guidance around how covered entities um, can share drugs without violating any 340B prohibitions during drug shortage situations. So I don't know, and right, it's not saying they have to create um, new rules because they can't, but they do want to issue guidance on how to do that without you know being subject to a GPO prohibition risk or a diversion risk. Uh, so I thought that was positive. So I, I got to give credit where credit's due. Um, I like that component, not opposed to the to the study. I think facts and data is good. Just don't like the idea of carving out some some unknown amount of uh, generic drugs from the 340B space. So something to watch. And again, that one um, that one was presented on July 28th. There's some language you can read around that. Um, and there is feedback on this one. I really want to bring this up. You can provide feedback on this bill through August 25th. And so Greg mentioned, you know, somewhere on the 14th, this drops. You have about 10 days from the day this podcast comes out. If you want to provide feedback on this bill, please do so. I think this is one I'm going to attempt to provide feedback on on that um, piece. And that um, I think before you start just taking away 340B price, maybe the study should be done first. It feels like you're putting the cart before the horse by automatically taking price. And when yeah. we don't know that, it actually affects um, uh, drug shortages. Yeah, interesting. Great update. All right, anything else? Gosh, no. Just it's, it's just just other than the fact that we are. We are in August 2023. This year's moving by yeah. fast. So, uh, yeah, you know, one thing that I, I forgot to put on our, our list of, of things to update folks on um, just this, this past week, we've seen two manufacturers scale back uh, some of the restrictions in states where there is legislation uh, protecting covered entities from losing 340B pricing and contract pharmacy channels. So, uh, Arkansas and Louisiana. So let, maybe we'll table that conversation, and then when we meet again, we can have uh, a more more in depth discussion around what what that might mean for for what uh, you know what at least covered entities in those states or other states that are pursuing some protections, uh, how that might impact 340B. I, I love that; it's a great topic. I almost thought about it as well. I know we only get through our questions, but absolutely because you got Matt, some manufacturers saying, "Fine, we're going to give pricing back." Some saying we're suing the state, right? So different yeah. tactics. Uh, but yeah, I think we should give some updates there because that might be, uh, you know, without the federal government or HRSA having the authority to enforce some of this, or if um, Representative Matsui's bill doesn't go through, then this might be another avenue, just like we saw with PBM discrimination. The states, you know, doing it first, and hopefully you get to a critical mass, and then then at a federal level, they decide to take up a bill similar so they can do it across the country. So we'll see. But yeah, definitely some interesting um, responses there. Maybe, maybe we get a lawyer on to talk about about that. That's a fine um, idea. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. Um, we'll have Aiden, our podcast producer and SpendMen's uh, event coordinator, uh, partner of our pharmacy team, uh, join us and ask some questions that we got from listeners. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendMen Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendbend.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Welcome back everyone. We've got Aiden Reagan from our team here. Aiden, thanks for hopping on the podcast. Of course, thanks for having me. We know you're super excited to be on this side of the microphone. Oh yeah, I'm thrilled. That's that's but definitely sarcasm for everyone listening, uh, if, if you can't tell. <laughs> she's doing this somewhat against her will, so. <laughs> we have All a right. couple questions. The first one that we have is, what are some considerations when opening an in-house pharmacy? Good question, right? So in-house, so and, and this is something that we're hearing more and more of, right? I think a lot of if you're a covered entity out there, it's it's probably got to be at least on your considerations list. 
And that's if you open up your own in-house retail pharmacy. Uh, you know, and part of the reason for this is A, so you can have better control for taking care of your patients, right? Discharge meds, providing charity care, much easier if you own the pharmacy um, for, for doing, you know, a, a, a sliding fee scale or a discounted uh, prescription or, or free prescriptions based on patients' financial needs. So that's a huge positive to opening one. But the reason I think it's become even more of a hot topic is because of manufacturer restrictions and contract pharmacy. As those continue to get, um, you know, more restrictive and more manufacturers add on, I think I think everyone, if you have a decent amount of retail prescription volume, needs to think about if you don't already have an in-house retail pharmacy, is it time to build one? Because we don't know, you know, how much worse the prescription um, manufacturer uh, restrictions can go. And on top of that, uh, you know, I know, uh, you know, we just talked about um, Doris Matsui's bill. We're hoping that goes through, but there's no guarantee that it does, right? It could get hung up and it could go into next year. And then we're in the, the year of everyone's trying to get reelected. And so we're not sure actually what gets passed and by when. And so I think it's a great consideration. Um, you know, three areas I think you really need to think about if you're going to have your own in-house retail pharmacy. The first one is, is it going to be a closed door or open door? And, and there's pros and cons to both. Um, I, I can say a lot of people want to do closed door because sometimes it's easier to manage, especially if you're only seeing your patients. Um, sometimes closed door means your patients and your employees, and sometimes your employees aren't always your patients. So you're still in a kind of a, a mixed qualification environment where some are qualified, some aren't. Um, open door does mean that you're going to have some non-qualified um, prescriptions. Um, now, the one, uh, one big thing um, to think about when you're thinking about uh, open door or closed door, I actually prefer open door in most cases. And because there's something called uh, PSAOs, right? When you open up a retail pharmacy, you actually have to get contracts with all the payers. And that's actually a lot of work if you have to go get each contract individually. So there's these things called PSAOs. I think most people are familiar with them. Most of the time they come from wholesale. But essentially a PSAO is a pharmacy services administration organization. I like to think of it as a GPO for, for retail pharmacy contracts. And what's helpful is if you're open, so most PSAOs don't allow for closed door pharmacies. So for that's one issue. So if you're open door, you can join a PSAO and you can kind of research the various PSAOs starting with your wholesaler. That's a common place to start with, but there's also PSAOs outside of the um, wholesalers and they're gonna just make it easier for you to get all your contracts. So that's a huge advantage. But again, if you wanna remain closed door and, and you have enough of a, a patient population to do that, that's fine. It just means you have to think about, it's gonna be a little more time consuming to manage those contracts. Okay. Uh, Greg, anything else to add about open or closed door? Any any thoughts you've had? No, I I think there's all good good thoughts and ideas around that that decision point. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so second one is now: Are you going to carve in or carve out Medicaid? Now, again, this is going to be state specific, but you have to if if your state allows it, right? Some states require you to carve in, and so you don't have a lot of choice there. Um, but if you are going to carve in Medicaid, then you have to make sure you know, okay, first, are you going to be able to meet your state's compliance requirements? So some require modifiers up front, um, some require AAC pricing, um, and all these things. Now, if you don't carve in Medicaid and you're doing a closed-door pharmacy where everyone qualifies, now you do have a problem. You now have a subset of patients that, that aren't 340B eligible, so you're going to have to come up with a process to exclude those from 340B. Um, if you're open-door, then it just falls in your qualification process where you carve in or carve out, those will be included if, if you're carving in and if you're carving out, then they'll be excluded. So, but definitely something you have to, it's a def, big decision point there. Um, let's see, and then the third one, and then Greg, I'll throw it over to you to see if you have any other thoughts here, is, is really around your inventory model and, and if you're gonna use a third-party administrator or a TPA, right? Lots of good TPAs out there that you can utilize to, to help qualify prescriptions if you're open door or even if your closed door pharmacy has uh, various um, options. Uh, but um, you really wanna decide that. I know some people will try a physically separate inventory and that can be hard because now you've got two inventories and, and your staff have to remember, I gotta go here for this one and here for this one. So now you need a good QA process to make sure that they're separated okay. Um, and that you can make sure that, okay, if, if you accidentally grab from one inventory that your your uh, pharmacy system will tell you, hey, your inventory is off so you can move inventory back. Um, the other issue with physically separate inventory is just space. Sometimes you don't have the space for it. And so I'd say in general, aside from a couple physically separate inventory pharmacies that I know, most are doing a virtual model where they're using a TPA to do it, or they're just manually going through their records after the fact. You don't have to use a TPA if it's your own pharmacy. You could take all your prescription data for the week or month and then go back through and identify who your patients are and do your own manual accumulation. So just depending on your volume and your bandwidth, um, there's a few options there. But I will say that using a third-party administrator is probably the easier option of the three. Plus, they can do some other things for you around um, reporting and, um, and and looking for non-qualified scripts and things like that. So, Greg, I'll pause there, see if anything else you want to add for um, in-house pharmacy um, opening one. No, I, 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a hot topic right now, especially as, you know, folks are looking to try to insulate themselves from ongoing contract pharmacy restrictions. You know, lots of you know, literature, at least in the in the hospital setting around the improvements, the outcomes, you know, positive outcomes with regard to patient experience when you can provide meds to beds, uh, discharge prescription delivery, discharge um, often best implemented through an in-house pharmacy. So lots of incentives, I think, right now to pursue this. But as you described, described here, really lots of work, too. Yeah, it it is a heavy lift. I will tell people, don't underestimate the time involved. And what I'd recommend yeah. if you are going to open up your own in-house retail pharmacy, maybe hire pharmacy managers sooner, sooner than later, right? Your pharmacy manager is going to be managing this pharmacy can do a lot of the heavy lifting for working with the DEA, working with your state board of pharmacy, um, getting the, you know, working with your wholesaler, PSAO contracts or individual contracts, especially if you're going that route. Um, but hire an experienced uh, retail pharmacist who's kind of been through those, that the, the scenario before, opened up a pharmacy before, or has the resources to reach out um, and do that. There's also some consulting firms out there that, that can help with this. Um, so you can reach out to them as well. But, um, but definitely think about that as a key Piece, find that pharmacy manager is probably your first thing if you're going to do this. Let them lead the way. Um, plus, they're going to be the ones running the pharmacy. So the experience opening up will be extremely critical for them. Before we move on to the next question, Rob, any insight or anecdotes you want to share around acquisition of maybe external pharmacies, bringing them in-house? So buying up an uh, independent pharmacy or a, uh, a local community pharmacy and converting that to an in-house pharmacy. What are your thoughts around that? I think it's a great strategy, right? I think um, a retail pharmacy business is actually getting harder in, here in the United States, right? Just payers are, they're getting less reimbursement. It's its a tough model. And so in some communities, if your retail pharmacies aren't doing well and, and you have, you know, open conversation with them and open dialogue and find out, you know, they might be ready to sell um, either because they're retiring or they just, you know, it's just getting harder. Um, and, and especially if they've been relying on your contract pharmacy savings and that's deteriorated with the manufacturer restrictions because maybe you didn't pick them as your single contract pharmacy. Uh, maybe you have an in-house retail, so you can't pick them as a single contract pharmacy. And so they've lost, you know, access to these 24 manufacturers. And so if that's the case, you know, it might be a good opportunity to see if they're that, you know, a retail pharmacy may be open to selling, uh, you know, and maybe they still want to stay working. They just don't want to do with the hassles of ownership anymore. And you know, maybe they take a, a little bit of chips off the table and, and get more comfortable and uh, work with you for the rest of their time that they want to uh, be an active pharmacist. But I, I love that idea. And we've got quite a few covered entities that have engaged with their community pharmacies to identify when this opportunity exists. Um, I, sometimes I think that's better than opening up your own pharmacy and creating competition because it's going to further hurt yeah. those retail pharmacies. And especially if you're in a small community, that can be that can be a little politically charged Um you know, if, if you end up closing down the retail pharmacy in town. So I, I think the nicer approach, if it's an opportunity, is to have a conversation with that, with your retail pharmacist in your area. Um, if you're in a bigger city, probably not much of an issue, but uh, for your smaller towns and, and cities, I, I think it's a great way to have that dialogue first. Greg, thought, uh, any thoughts as well? Because I know you work with a couple, uh, couple covered entities that also have done some acquisitions. Yeah, I think, you know, just highlights the importance of having good community engagement and under, understanding kind of where your organization fits in the overall, you know, uh, community where you're, where, where, where you're sitting, because that, that, you know, you may have a, uh, an independent retail pharmacy that's floundering, but is, you know, relied upon by, you know, the, you know, members of your community. And, and there may be partnership there between a, uh, a 340B covered entity and an independent retail pharmacy to kind of keep that, keep the doors open, retain access but also um, fold that into 340B program operations. Yeah, yeah. You know, the key area to think about is there's some manufacturers that have a 40 mile restriction, that's for contract pharmacy. If it's a key pharmacy, because maybe you have a child site near that location, you know, you have the 35 mile rule. So something's close at 35 miles, that pharmacy's close, but now you can't even select them as a single contract pharmacy. That's that's another good situation where, you know, um, possibly acquiring that pharmacy might be a better option because um, ownership in, in a far, if it's your pharmacy, there isn't a 40 mile rule. So another potential way mm -hmm. to uh, navigate that, that gap and being able to select the pharmacy that might be critical for your hospital and your patients. All right, Aiden, okay. let's move on to the next question. Next question, curious about your recommendations for educational resources and material that community health centers and FQHCs can share with stakeholders about the benefits of 340B. Good question. Really good question. Um, you know, this one, so I, so depending on your covered entity type, I think this one is specifically said FQHC. Um, and so for FQHCs, I recommend NAC, um, you know, N-A-C-H-C, um, NAC, uh, 
has some great resources on their website. Um, and so I, I know they have, if you go to NAC's website and you don't have to be a member, they actually let, they put this out there um, publicly available. But if you go to their policy and advocacy page, they actually have a really nice write-up on 340B called a critical program for health centers um, and has both an executive summary and a full report. So I think that's a good one to have. Um, you know, it's something I think they updated uh, not too long ago. I think it's 2022. Um, and uh, late 2022, and it's it's just a good document for what 340B does for the community, just to ed educate people. But that's kind of more broad for the program. We always recommend that every single covered entity, and oh, by the way, if you're a hospital, you should be going to 340B Health. There's some of those same resources at 340B Health for hospitals, and that's going to be probably true for many covered entities. You can go to either one of those sites and see what they have there and see what fits for you, and if not, some of your, um, your 340B organizations may be able to help as well. But the second thing is making sure you have your own impact statement, right? Something that we haven't talked about in a while on the podcast, but um, I know we've talked about it in webinars and we talk about it internally on our newsletters that go to our clients. But, but I, I personally feel every covered entity should have an impact statement. So that's really talking about what you do as a covered entity for patients in your community, maybe services you've created because of your 340B savings, um, charity care that you're providing. Um, anything that you do that's benefiting the community, that's providing that impact that you're leveraging those 340B savings for should be on this one to two pager. We like a one to two pager. That way, if you have local representatives or senators or sorry, federal level senators and representatives, we've been talking about all these bills, you know, really you can go look up, well, are any of my senators and representatives at the federal level in these committees that are voting on these things? And you can send your impact statement. And you can send this executive summary from NAC or 340B Health and say, here's what 340B Health does for patients in our community and just educating, um, you know, everyone that 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 could be a stakeholder. And, and I like the, uh, the fact that they're asking about, you know, what what kind of resources are available, because I think it's critical that we do better education um, because there's because people are going to be educated on 340B. The question is, is it going to be a negative spin on 340B or is it going to be a positive spin? And I think for us to be able to get ahead of it in, and create positive spin, I think every covered entity needs to do their part in, in, in sharing what 340B does to benefit patients in the community. Yeah, I mean, I know we've said it here on the podcast and we, we've talked about it elsewhere. I mean, transparency requirements are coming. So, you know, the, the need for a 340B impact statement not, not only helps with kind of your your internal understanding and own your own edification of how the 340B program works for you. But, you know, it's it's hard to believe, you know, this time in a couple of years from now, we're not going to have some statutory requirements that, you know, make the covered entity uh, offer up some of that information. So start working on that now. Another thing I, I like to suggest, maybe this is, is self-serving and I'm biased, but engage your vendors. You know, we do a lot of education with 340B steering committees, you know, have audit, do an external audit for, for a client, but they may come back in a couple of months and say, hey, we'd just love you to have, uh, have have you on our, you know, steering committee call just to talk about kind of what's new and what's hot in the 340B space. And that's been a great way to kind of educate folks on high level uh, development in, in the 340B world. So, so make sure you're you're asking your uh, the vendors that you happen to be working with to see if they'd be willing to, to offer up some opportunities to, to educate your, your, your leadership. Greg, that, that last point is actually really good. Um, you know, and I'm sure we both experienced it when we were at the hospital level. Sometimes you can say the same thing as the pharmacy leader, the 340B leader, the 340B analyst, the buyer, whatever your role is. And then you have a consultant come yeah. in and say the exact same thing. And, and, and then leadership is like, oh, that's great information. We should do that. And you're sitting there going, man, I've said that like three times already. And so sometimes it is helpful yeah. to have your consultants share externally what we're seeing um, and that sometimes just, and even as frustrating as that can be, just use that and leverage that, you know, have a conversation with your um, consultants and say, hey, here's what I've been talking about. I'm not sure if my, my C-suite's really getting the picture. Can you help? And then, and then whoever your consultants is can, should be able to hop on and, and really drive some of that messaging home for you. So definitely partner with them. Yeah. I like, great idea, Greg. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, in, in that you know whether it's you know somebody like us that's providing the education, or even even asking your your vendors to help you make peer connections. So like covered entities that maybe have you know the same type of EHR and the same PPA. And if you're you're there are people out there, there are organizations out there struggling with the same problems that you're struggling that are kind of set up from an infrastructure similarly to you. So you know take advantage of of those you know vendors networks to kind of get connected with with peers out in the 340B space. All right, Aiden. Let's move on. Next question says, I have heard that certain CAR-T product companies wait three days to validate that the patient did not get readmitted to the hospital. 
after an outpatient transplant to give PHS pricing on CAR-T. If the patient gets admitted, they want to charge WAC pricing. I always thought that the patient status at the time of administration determines the PHS pricing, not if the patient gets admitted to the inpatient after administration. What are your thoughts? First of all, what a great question. Second, I know who wrote the question, but we said to be anonymous, but uh, I want to thank that person. Um, we get to work with um, he or she. I won't even say, say who it is, um, but uh, good question. I, I, this, I, I, actually, I actually really, really agree with this and, and don't feel that the manufacturer should be dictating if a patient in in, is an inpatient or an outpatient, therefore it should be 340B or not. I actually find it interesting that they're going to—they're basically arguing that they're an inpatient, but they want to charge WAC instead of GPO is another concern I have. But before you even get to that, just want to remind everybody the way HRSA operates is the HRSA, HRSA, the HRSA, HRSA uh, really lets you as a covered entity, and this is for hospitals primarily, right? FQACs don't have inpatient, outpatient status, so for hospitals. But HRSA lets you determine by definition and putting into your policy what you consider an inpatient or an outpatient, and it has to make sense, right? You can't say everyone's an in, everyone's an outpatient at my hospital, um, and so you have to have some kind of reasonable definition for inpatient or outpatient status. The common one that we've worked with our clients on is stating that we determine the patient status at the time the drug is administered um, or, or dispensed. I actually like to use the word charge better than anything because whether you admit you, whether you charge administration or charge and dispense, what's really going across to the third party administrator is the charge time. So we like to use whatever that patient status is, that's what it is. And and to use some kind of thing where after the fact, you're trying to determine if the patient went inpatient, now you're going to change it, doesn't actually make sense. I always tell people it this way. If, if you had a physically separate mixed-use inventory, so you had 340B G GPO, and you say, I'm not going to do WAC because every patient who comes in, I know what their status is. So I'm just going to carry 340B and GPO, right, because it's not virtual. That's You need WAC because you're virtually creating one inventory. Then whatever the patient status is, you'd grab it. So when that CAR-T patient came in, the patient would status would be outpatient, you would grab the drug from your 340B location. And I'd like to think the virtual mixed-use model that just about everybody uses um, should operate under the same premise, which means that at the time you would have made the determination would be when you gave the drug and you would have pulled it from that inventory. So I don't think anything changes here. So I don't actually think it's appropriate for a manufacturer to say, no, no, that patient went inpatient, we're going to make that whack. I think the covered entity gets to determine that. I think that should be in your policy. You should share that with the manufacturer, share that this is what HRSA is allowed. And if you've been through a HRSA audit, say this has actually been passed by a HRSA audit and, and fight for the fact that we determine at the time the patient what the patient status is when the patient is given the drug or charged for the drug. And in this case, the patient was an outpatient, therefore we like 340B pricing. So I definitely fight for that stance um, as, as, again, I think the manufacturer's overextending on this one. Yeah, I agree. And this is, uh, you know, we're talking about CAR-T therapy, but I think this is an argument that I've heard come up through manufacturing inquiries in the past. You know, some manufacturers, you know, will, will send a letter to a 340B covered entity and say, look, you bought this drug on your 340B account. You know, we recognize this as an acute care medication that's only to be given to patients in the inpatient setting, um, you know, whether it's maybe an anesthesia reversal agent or an oncology agent. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't make sense when you understand, you know, the way that, you know, hospital throughput occurs in the, or patient throughput occurs in the hospital space. You may have a patient that's bedded in an acute care unit that's sitting in an outpatient uh, status, and HRSA gives covered entities the flexibility to make those determinations of out versus inpatient in in policy. So I, I think this is certainly in an area where you would want to put, push back on the manufacturer and, and ask for, you know, a better understanding of what what they're what they're intending with their, um, you know, their policy or, or what their communication that they're sharing. Yeah, especially CAR-T is very expensive. So this, I can see this being a really big deal. And I guess I understand why the manufacturer is trying to do this. But I do think pushing back is the right thing to do here. Good, good question. For next question. All, all great questions. All, all great questions. That uh, really interesting kind of, you know, developing question with, with a high cost product category. So, all right, Aiden, next question. What are your thoughts on continuum of care argument for prescription qualification and below the line 340B qualifications, 190 clinics and 340B eligibility? Okay, now we're now we're, we're getting some tough questions now. Okay, continuum of care argument, Greg. That's that's a good one. And and relate. This is actually related to the Morford letter, right? We've we've we had a whole episode on the Morford letter, and so I won't rehash that whole thing. Um, as fun as that is, and and of course people know that that was also the code word to get your T-shirt at Coalition. Um, but it is related to that, right? It's related to the Morford letter and the fact that you know HRSA at least. Now we should point out. Um, 
our thoughts on it are that right now it's it's probably more allowed than it has been in the past, but it's related to the Genesis law case and Hearst's ability to enforce guidance or not enforce guidance. Um, and and we don't know what's going to happen with the Genesis law case. That that court case is actually going on here in August. Um, we recently actually heard that Hearst has stated that they're still standing their ground. They're not giving anything there, so they're s fighting for their position. Um, and so so my thoughts around continuum of care are. At the moment, um, HRSA is seems to be at least providing a little bit of leeway to use continuum of care arguments, um, which which just to remind everybody means that if you see the patient um, in a qualified location, then there's an argument that if that patient continues on and sees an external provider that's not in a qualified location that's related to the care you provided, so continuum of care, then that that prescription written at the non-qualified location could be considered eligible based on the original care that you provided. Um, now, I do think Wait, one thing I want to highlight. Hold on, oh, Rob. Ahead, I just, sorry. Yeah. I just wanted, yeah, you said external. So seen in the hospital or seen in a qualifying location and then seen at an ineligible location by an external provider. That That's a little bit different. That We would be talking about referral capture here. We're Here we're talking about patient goes to the hospital and is seen by the same or another affiliated provider of the covered entity in a non-eligible location, physician office practice below the line clinic. True, right. right. The provider doesn't necessarily, it could still be on your provider list. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct, right? It's yep. fact, eligible the provider. Letter okay. is more specific. The Morphin letter specifically says that you're actually seen in, in a clinic that's part of your health system. It's just not a, a 340B eligible clinic. So it's even more specific in the Morphin letter, but but you're right. So, But it's this idea that the patient is being seen after care at a qualified location at a non-qualified location. Um, could be the same provider, which you actually see in many cases. You, you see that with like a, a surgical discharge or in many surgeries where the, the patient's seen at the hospital in the surgery setting, they discharge, and then they get follow-up care at the surgeon's practice, which is is not a non-qualified, not a qualified location. And um, and what do we do with that prescription? Because it's clearly related to the care that was provided. And so continuum care says that, that yeah. you know, in theory, that's okay. Um, you know, the question always is for how long? Morford says two years is too long, but but really HRSA doesn't have a stance on how long is too long. And so I think that's something that you would have to come up with and put in your policy. Um, and I do think personally that that time frame makes a big difference in acute settings. So that's an ER discharge, a hospital discharge, a surgical discharge versus an ambulatory care setting, where, where which is Genesis's case argument that if we're their primary care provider, there isn't, you know, some end to our, our care. It's, it's ongoing. It's Forever. ambulatory. And so, yeah. therefore, right, everything that the patient gets should qualify is, is the argument there. So, two different arguments related to continuum of care and at, versus in acute um, clinical setting versus an ambulatory clinical setting. Uh, but we do feel at the moment, it's it's we think uh, Hearst is not issuing findings from what we've seen in all the Hearst audits we've participated in that had um, a, a continuum of care argument being presented. Um, but I do think this is one we have to watch because if if this law case with Genesis goes Hearst's way, then they may start enforcing this uh, again, like they did prior to 2019. So, moving target for sure. Yeah, and, and hard to automate too, because essentially what you're saying is you're going to allow prescriptions that are written from ineligible locations to qualify, but you don't want to take those locations and designate them as eligible locations in your CPAs. So there needs to be some degree of uh, visibility or maybe prospective auditing of those claims or even retrospective auditing of those claims that are qualifying from written, in, ineligible written from locations, making sure that you can tie the responsibility of care back to the covered entity. So, you know, I think the theory, very com comfortable with the theory of qualifying continuum of care, but I, I do struggle with giving concrete recommendations on how to, how to execute it in a more automated fashion. Yeah, you're right. Super hard. Some of the TPAs are really good about providing review queues that you can work with and making sure these prescriptions get added to your review queues. Um, so they're kind of getting teed up. Otherwise, you are having to take your non-qualified prescriptions and coming up your, with your own process for how to identify these um, continuum of care ones. Okay. Right, what about There's a below question. the line clinics or 190 clinics? Yeah. Uh, Greg, I feel like I want to let you take this one. <laughs> no, I'm not telling you. I don't want to touch this one at all. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was start talking about uh, in and out burgers again. Um, below the line, yeah. this is a tough one. That's why, right? So we're talking about clinics in the 192, 190 section, actually 190s, 192 are common numbers. And of course, as a reminder, the qualified locations, according to HRSA's 1994 guidance, is um, are locations between lines 50 and 118. So when we say below the line, we're saying they're below 118, right? That's where that terminology comes from. 
So below 118, again, typically 190s is the number. Um, so very well below 118. Uh, this is tough, right? We've had a couple of clients researching this because if when you read the actual statute, it talks about um, uh, the locations being an integral part of the covered entity, um, right? And these are these are some of the wordings being used. And it's only guidance from 1994 that says that a offsite location has to be, you know, between lines 50 and 118 and have both um, costs and charges. That's so it's worksheet A and worksheet C values um, to be considered eligible or to be registrable, right? And and you know, and I, I know we've covered it a lot, so I won't go into it. But then when we got the guidance back in 2020 that said, um, not, I guess not guidance, but clarification is probably what it was. It wasn't actually guidance that said, hey, 340B eligibility and 340B registration are, are di distinct and different. So you can be considered something 340B eligible without it being registrable, right? This, that's the whole idea of a new location that's not on a file cost report, but will be. Um, and, you know, of course, between 50 and 118, it's going to have expenses and charges and worksheet A and C. We can consider it eligible before then. Another error that's related to this, um, before I get into 192s, is charity care clinics. One of my biggest pet peeves of the 340B program has always been charity care clinics, right? If you think about the program's for, wouldn't that be a key clinic that you'd want 340B eligible? But by the no. 1994 guidance, you cannot register a charity care clinic, on, if it's on line 90, charity care clinic, where it's a true free clinic because you never bill for drugs, you don't have charges on worksheet C. And I, I had this at my hospital and it frustrated me to no end that I had all this expense. Cause you gotta buy wax. So you had, I, I had the wax. You gotta, I you did. Gotta, yeah. Drove me absolutely yeah. crazy that I'm doing this free clinic on line 90, but because I don't bill, I actually have a charge on worksheet C, I'm, I'm doing all these retail prescriptions at WAC. is is bonkers. Um, how did I mute? That was crazy. Okay. Oh, you know what? I think I hit the, I was, my hands were doing this and I just hit the button. Okay. Sorry for all <laughs> well, this. I'm very excited right now talking about this. I got so. excited. I started talking about all kinds of stuff. Okay. <laughs> got to stop using my hands and hitting space bars. Um, so where, I don't know where I got cut off on, but I'll go back to the, um, so we have charity care clinics and relays as prison clinics. We, we have a client with prison clinics on line 90 um, that are qualified well, they're on a qualified line, but they also don't have charges because you don't bill prisoners for, for their medications. Um, and, and they're state hosp or, or sorry, they're a um, county hospital. So it's the county prisons, I shouldn't say state, county prisons in their area. So it makes sense why they have them there and they're providing clinical services and, and, and prescription benefits, but they can't qualify the clinic because they don't bill for the services. So those clinics don't qualify and therefore, in theory, does it qualify? Now, they did ask for one-off permission from HRSA to register them and they allowed them to register them. So my point is HRSA has been allowing these registrations when things don't quite fit the 1994 guidance. And 192s, probably one level further down that road, right? Because now we're talking about non-qualified lines, according to HRSA, um, and they have expenses, uh, covered and you consider them integral. But the question is, is HRSA going to register them? So I know for one of our clients, um, I know we had two clients trying to do this, right, Greg? Um, definitely won't mention any names. And one, we actually reached out to, to Apexis, and Apexis couldn't get a clear answer for us. Sent us on to HRSA. So I had a good conversation with one of the HRSA 340B leaders um, uh, about this. And, and her response was, can't give you a definitive answer, right? Can't give us an answer that's going to be for everybody. Um, and she said, it really depends on the situation. And, and each covered entity would have to present that situation to HRSA. And so what I felt was, my, my response back to our covered entity colleague was they didn't say no. You, you still have to ask directly and, and share your situation um, with them. So I think, so what I'm saying is there's a chance, right? That's our big joke. I'm saying there's a chance. Um, but uh, but I do think this is a harder one to get past than say a charity care clinic or a prison clinic on a qualified line, but not saying, but but it's not a no. Um, you just have to work with HRSA on that. And so Greg, but you helped me with some of this. You're part of some of this. Just like to see what did I miss yeah. in there? What would you advise is there as well? No, I I think that you know, spot on, Rob. You know, I think in this, I think this issue, the issue of do 190 clinics are they eligible, is conflated with the issue of continuum of care because we've heard a lot of anecdotes from other folks in the 340B space that have said, look, during HERS audit, what scripts written from 190 clinics satisfied HERS audit criteria. In each of those cases, at least that we're aware of, those patients were also seen at a eligible location prior to that prescription having been written. So they qualified likely because of continuum of care and not necessarily because HRSA interprets 190 clinics or below the line clinics to be eligible locations. Again, there's no formal agency policy on this particular issue, but I do think that there's been some confusion out there conflating the issue of continuum of care and 190 clinics both being eligible. 
Yeah, yeah, it is a tough one. And I, I think the bigger argument would be a legal argument that the 1994 guidance, which is sub-regulatory and unenforceable, um, shouldn't be allowed to issue a finding. And so if you go back to the actual statute, it's really not, doesn't have any specifics on this. So you'd be making an argument that that a 190 clinic is integral to your hospital and meets all other patient criteria, 340B patient eligibility criteria. Um, and I think that's why HRSA is reluctant to simply say no, impossible, because I think they have to realize anything that's just guidance, um, they may have a hard time enforcing if if a court decided that that guidance was not in line with the plain language of the statute. So, so yeah, yeah another, another area jar, where you look, maybe a crack. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, finding I think findings related to 190 clinic use are, are going to be challenged by covered entities, and you know, I don't know to what extent HRSA can enforce. Uh, you know, the 94 guidance related to use of 340B and 190 clinics. Yeah, yeah. Good questions. I know who asked that one too. Mm -hmm. She did a good job. We'll have to talk to her about that later, putting us on the spot like that. Okay. Sorry, Dave. What you more? Can you discuss the upcoming Inflation Reduction Act in your perspective as it pertains to pharmacy reimbursement of Medicare Part D and the top 10 price negotiated drugs? Okay. All right, good question. Um, we, we, you know, we, ha we haven't covered this one in a while, so I think it's timely to bring back. Um, I think I, what we heard that we will be getting some um, information next year on what those drugs are, I think, or at least oh, soon. No, 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 September. So we, we will know, That's right. I think, first or second week of September, what drugs, what, what of the first 10 Part D drugs will be subject to maximum fair price starting 2026? So, you know, so we, so I'll just focus on a response to the question. Um, just here's the biggest thing, right? That, that everyone's like, well, how's that going to impact 340B? It's going to actually have a, uh, for those 10 drugs, it'll impact 340B because essentially what Medicare is doing is they're reducing reimbursement, right? This, so they call, you know, they call it a price negotiation. There's, there's not a lot of negotiation. They have a statutory formula that they're going to use for the 10 drugs, which have the highest Medicare drug spend that meet the criteria. And we, we won't rehash all that for time. Um, we have a we have an Inflation Reduction Act episode you can listen to to get the details. But essentially, for those ten drugs in 2026, you're gonna it's all, all gonna be Medicare Part D, so retail. You're gonna receive less reimbursement. And then, as a as if it's your pharmacy, um, then you have the option to look and determine if they're 340B eligible. You can go buy them at 340B if they're a better price. If the MFP price is better, then you buy it at the MFP price, right? So hopefully, you want to put into place lesser of logic. Um, um, we highlighted recent thing on a couple episodes ago that there is a possibility that um, MFP could be better than 340B. That 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 calculation can happen. So you're going to want to look at that. Um, and what we don't know though is how that's going to occur, right? There's I think most wholesalers that I talked to said, we hope it's not another class of trade, right? Now there's, an, you know, because you can see that if you're a, uh, you know, a, a retail pharmacy, now you're going to have to have 340B and either GP or WAC, depending if you're subject to the GPO prohibition and an MFP. And somehow you're going to know, have to, your buyers are going to have to know which account to buy it on. Um, so that can get really messy. Um, I actually, I do think if that occurs, we're going to need some good analytics so that we do have some better, lesser of logic, kind of like many TPAs have today, you know, where if WAC is cheaper than buy it on WAC type thing. So I, I think we're going to need some solutions here, but I think most wholesalers are hoping it's a rebated process so that you go through it. And if you want to seek a rebate on it, you probably have to submit some data and then you get a rebate on those um, MFP uh, paid drugs um, if it if the MFP is better or if it's not 340B eligible. But yeah, I think we have some work to do. We also know that um, there's going to have to be some modifiers for Medicare, which we already know is going to occur in 2024. Uh, so I think through the, here and now the rest of the year, we're going to be paying attention to what the requirements are and definitely sharing that because I think everyone's going to have have to be prepared to add modifiers in both retail and administered drugs, especially if you haven't been up to this point in time, uh, everybody's going to have to. And so it's it's going to be some workload that's probably going to come not soon enough for everyone to get it in place on time. Um, so just be prepared for that and definitely start warning your billing departments that this is coming. Yeah, I think everybody's kind of, you know, waiting on pins and needles to understand what the CMS rules and regs are going to be around the actual implementation of this. Are we looking at a quadruple split? You know, an MFP account associated with your purchasing or, or pharmacies going to have to, you know, invest in resources to track down back-end rebates, which also is going to be labor-intensive too. So, uh, Can I throw in one more thing? And uh, what I'm also recently seeing is some manufacturers are actually suing CMS over this. 
Um, I'm not yeah. sure if that's going to slow it down or not, but uh, manufacturers aren't um, just accepting the um, Inflation Reduction Act as is, definitely making some legal arguments why why some of that might not be appropriate. So we'll have to pay attention to that, too, to see if that delays any of the IRA um, implementations. Because as a reminder, the inflation penalty actually was supposed to have started occurring in 2023, wow. I think, second, right, should be in already. But because they didn't have the yeah, modifiers yeah. on all drugs, they weren't able to, to effectively remove the 340B drugs from the inflation rebate requests, um, inflation rebate penalty requests to manufacturers. So they postponed it to January. Um, but we still haven't heard clear guidance on what that's going to be. And my feeling is if they don't get it to us, you know, say before the beginning of the fourth quarter, I'm not sure if all covered entities are going to have the bandwidth to actually implement a modifier process or an N1 process, or hopefully we're all hoping for a clearinghouse process. Whatever it is, we really need yep. to know what that is come January 1st in case we have to do something up front. But we'll, we'll see what happens there. All right. And there was a second part to that question, right, Aiden? Yeah, so this is the second part to that. It says, can you discuss the possible pros and cons of an FQHC utilizing a PSAO and having to change its NCPDP pharmacy designation from closed door to open door? Okay, well, good. So we, we've already actually discussed um, part of this. And our first, I think one of the first questions we answered around PSAOs. Um, so we won't recover what a PSAO is. But yeah, I mean, so I think this person is talking about the pros and cons. I mean, the pros, of course, is that you don't have to do individual contracts. Um, I, I didn't get too deep into PSAO, so now maybe is a better time to do that. Um, the, you know, so why the pros for PSAOs, of course, you get better reimbursement rates, right? It's, like I said, it's kind of like a GPO for retail pharmacy contracting. If you try and go get your own contract with a manufacturer with just your one covered entity and its volume, you're not going to get as good of a contract if you pulled volume for, say, 50 covered entities. And same thing happens here for retail pharmacy. So the PSAO is essentially pulling together a bunch of retail pharmacies, going to each um, you know, PBM or, or payer and saying, hey, what kind of rates can I get for my conglomerate of retail pharmacies? That's what you're doing when you join a PSAO. So you're going to get auto enrollment in most Medicare and commercial plans, and you're going to get better reimbursement rates than if you try and go it alone. Um, and so that's, that's the pros. Um, I guess other pros are we have seen, especially in 340B for closed-door pharmacy, where some payers and PBMs have singled out contract pharmacies for lower reimbursement because they know they're a closed-door 340B pharmacy. Right? I know some of this PBM discrimination is, is countering that, but prior to that, we actually saw that quite a bit, that the reimbursement rates were extremely poor if you're a closed-door 340B pharmacy and having to get a single-source contract. You may not even get a contract in some cases. So that's some of the positives. The negative is it doesn't give you the ability to negotiate rates directly with some of those pairs or PBMs where you might want to partner tighter or, or have some different thing or formulary you have going on. So, so it does mean you, you lose a little bit of your flexibility. But I think the overall pros outweigh the cons. If I were to open up a retail pharmacy today, I'd almost guarantee try and make it open door and get a PSEO because I wouldn't want to deal with all that contracting and I want the most favorable contracts possible. Yeah, and lots of technological solutions out there to help you manage the, the split inventory that you would need in an open door pharmacy as well. Yep, yep. So I, I'm, I'm sure there might be some more cons out there besides a lack of flexibility or, or you know, having to take the contracts as is, but um, th that's the mm -hmm. only ones I can think of from the con side. So I, I think the pros are the cons on this one. Now, if you have to keep it a closed door pharmacy because it just makes more sense or you don't want to have non-340B inventory, then then it just does mean you have to go and get your contracts as best you can, but uh, definitely might uh, impact your reimbursement. Okay. Was that the last one or do we have more, Aiden? We actually have two more, one for each of you. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, these weren't pre screened oh no. So I'll these ones were that. sent in a ton, so people are really wanting to know. So the first one, does Greg have Craggle for the basement legacy? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Craggle. We gotta preface this. Because because Greg's not so we're on camera today for those watching. I'm not in the basement, yeah. So, oh, I'm not in the wait, basement. I am, I'm in, yeah, right. I'm allowed upstairs now. So. But Greg, when you <laughs> normally work out of your basement and behind you has this big table with Legos on it and it's just like the Lego movie. And so that's why in Craggle, of course, is crazy glue. It's just, so if, if you have to watch the, the Lego movie if you haven't, then you, it won't make sense. But that's what the Craggle question is coming from. But that wasn't me. So I don't know who asked that question. Yeah, so we, no, no Craggle. I've not uh, used Craggle like the dad in the Lego movie. No, I, uh, I do play with the Legos, I'm sure, you know, at some point, you know, not when I'm supposed to be working, but, you know, 
the uh, the, the Legos and the gym equipment as the it's all kinds of distractions out there when the kids are, are home. So yeah, but no uh, no crazy glue yet. You, you let the kids play with it, in other words. I do. Yeah, we have lots of creativity, so no, we don't have to follow the instructions. So excellent. I'm afraid for my. Although I do now. like, to, I'm a pharmacist. I'm a very type A person, so I like to follow the instructions. You know, uh, I'm not a master builder. I just can't make anything up from Legos. So, but uh, I haven't haven't had to use the Craggle yet. Nice, nice. I, I don't know if we have time. Um, Greg and I had this great conversation about In and Out. It's my son's birthday today, and of course he requested In and Out, so I got my In and Out soda. And I know Greg likes In and Out. Greg shared with me something I did not know. What did you learn from, um, if I can say KJ, um, one of our clients, about the the, the top secret menu at um, In Out? I, I didn't know about this one. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I learned this from from KJ's out, out at uh, Honor Health and Phoenix. He's actually the first uh, person I worked with when I joined back when it was Turnkey Pharmacy Solutions. My first on-site audit was a first audit, and uh, KJ and I got uh, lunch at In and Out right afterwards. My first time going In and Out was fantastic. It's my favorite place now. But there's, I'd have to fly, I don't know, hours to, to get it. So I don't, I don't enjoy it all that often. But the secret menu item is a triple triple so it's a triple cheeseburger i guess you can do a double double if you are trying to eat light um animal style so the sauce and the onions on the burger but uh green chilies adding green chilies to your in and out burgers fantastic touch green chili it's it almost reminds me of our new mexico clients uh, i go to uh, new mexico every year for uh big health system down there yeah. and um, it's, it's rudder green chilies and I like the green chilies on there as a little spike. I didn't know they had green chilies though. So I have to try that next time. Yeah, I go. So little Southwest flair to the in and out burger. So excellent. Okay. Well, that, that was a good question. Aid, I'm a little scared for the question you have for me. So why don't we get that over with? Yeah. So it's actually a perfect segue. Cause this one says, Rob, what's your favorite menu item from Bojangles? I hear you frequent it often when you're out on audit. I know. So it's a guilty pleasure. We don't have, so just like Greg doesn't have in and out um, we're in his neck of the woods. I'm in, of course, people don't know I'm in Salt Lake City. And so we have in and out in my neighbor, my city has one. So it's like five minutes from my house. But um, so what we don't have here on the West Coast side is Bojangles, which I'm sure people on the East Coast are like really Bojangles, but they have a spicy chicken biscuit that I just like. Something about spicy chicken on a good biscuit um, is, it feels good to me. So I, um, I, I don't, get to eat it very often, but if I pass a Bojangles, I don't care if it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I'm getting a Bojangles spicy chicken biscuit. And they used to have a Bojangles at the Atlanta airport, but uh, through COVID, it kind of closed down. And I haven't been back to Atlanta airport to see if it reopened, but I may or may not have gotten a spicy chicken biscuit at every every time I went to Atlanta. I even go to that terminal just to go get a Bojangles, even if I didn't fly, wasn't flying out of it, so. I, I can't tell you how many times I've audited somebody the year after you did their audit before, and, you know, it'd be like lunchtime or it'd be like at the end of the day. And I'd say, hey, do you guys have a suggestion for me to grab a quick bite to eat before I go to the airport? And, and like dozens of times, the clients would say, I don't Rob goes to the Bojangles that's, you know, four blocks down before you get on the highway. It's like every time, where does Rob go? It's, it's Bojangle. It got bad enough. Someone's clients you're talking about, and you guys know who you are. And thank you. So you guys are so awesome. Totally don't have to do it. Not saying anyone else should do this because I, I don't need that many Bojangles. But they knew I liked it so much. They'd say, "Don't get breakfast. Don't eat the crappy breakfast at your hotel." Because everyone knows I we stay. At, I try and stay at the the Mar the cheap Marriott's with the Continental, and it's you know it's it's not the best um, quality stuff. So they say, "Don't eat breakfast. I'm going to bring you something." And they always one of the clients always got me a Bojangle sandwich for breakfast, which is really nice. So. It's good. You got to try it. If you guys haven't tried one in a while, uh, it's 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 a good one. That's a tip out there for folks that are going to be audited by Rob in the future. If they want things to go well, should you have Bojangles <laughs> ready first day. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. Like, That's a fun, spicy, fun question. I, and I always ask. I, I ask. I always. They always know what you get, and I I always forget. So spicy chicken biscuit. Okay. Spicy chicken biscuit sandwich. That's all I get. I don't even get sides. Like I get anything else. Is that a breakfast item or is that like an all-day item? I've never been to Bojangles. So I don't know no. if they have different menus or. That's what's beautiful about it. It should be a breakfast item, but you can get it all day, even for dinner. Okay. All and right. I may or may not have gotten for dinner on more than one occasion. <laughs> I'm a cheap date. I would go to in and out three times a day while traveling if I could. So awesome. no, no judgment hey, here, Rob. 
Aiden, it's not fair that we got asked. Aiden, what is your favorite fast food? Um, I'm going to be basic, and I'm just going to say Chick-fil-A. Excellent. My son is going from – What do you get there? Oh, yeah. yeah. What's your sandwich? Um, We're kind of twins, Rob, because I usually get, like, a spicy chicken. And they have a spicy mm-hmm. chicken biscuit now, so My son starts out. there in two weeks. He's leaving his current – fried chicken finger place, which is a knockoff of Raising Cane's, almost like it came out like McDowell's from uh, Coming to America, but it's Mr. Charlie's Chicken Fingers. Um, so he's, he's just, he's leaving there, put his two weeks notice, and he's going to start at um, Chick-fil-A here in, in a couple of weeks. So I'll be frequenting Chick-fil-A more often. So spicy chicken oh, biscuit great. there. Yeah. And the Excellent. best ice, the pebble ice. I do like the pebble ice. Love, love the Chick-fil-A pebble ice. Yeah. Well, I think I think we've given everyone a little bit of uh, non 340B content here at the end to think about. Depends where in the country. Uh, fun conversation. But Greg, thank you. Aiden, thank you. And uh, again, uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we'll catch up in the future. All right. See you guys. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.